Now there's 15 candidates. Trump is already calling them a caravan. <laughs> National emergency. Build the wall. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake, California. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and Cottage Grove on KSO, and in Eugene on KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. In Palinville, New York on WLPP, Grand Rapids WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Goldendale, Washington's KVGD. Jonesville, Wisconsin's WADR and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. Streaming coast-to-coast and around the globe every day as well on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Coming up very, very momentarily, because uh, I have a lot to talk to him about, legal reporter Mark Joseph Stern of Slate will be joining us after far too long of... Mark Joseph Stern of Slate not joining us, Desi I agree. Doyen. I agree. Um, so uh, I I don't know what happened, but we'll try to make up for some of that uh, lack of Mark Joseph Stern shortly, uh, including uh, discussing some court news regarding gerrymandering and redistricting today in advance of the 2019 off-year elections in Mississippi and Virginia and, of course, 2020 everywhere else. We'll talk about what could be, hopefully, a landmark ruling last week out of Connecticut regarding guns and the 2012 Sandy Hook massacre. The federal courts, their lurch to the right on abortion rights. And, uh, of course, the most important pressing raging controversy tearing the nation apart at the seams right now. Daylight savings times. So <laughs> that's we, the raging controversy tearing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we'll get all of that in if the extra hour of sunlight uh, that we now have makes it possible <laughs> to fit it in. Uh, but first, as usual in the uh, Trump era, there is far too much going on for us to cover it all. So we won't even try. But some uh, quick items uh, or two here that uh, deserve more coverage. Uh, that might otherwise get a lot more coverage at pretty much any other time in our nation's history. 
that wasn't the Trump era. Hundreds of homes have flooded in northwest Missouri after the Missouri River overtopped and breached several levees. Levees built to contain expected flood levels that this apparently is higher than this following heavy rain and snowmelt upstream. According to local officials on Monday, many homes in the mostly rural area were inundated with six to seven feet of water, Des. Yep. Holt County Emergency Management Director Tom Bullock noted that one couple was rescued in a helicopter. We're rescuing people from helicopters now. Sounds like Hurricane Katrina. Residents in part of southwest Iowa were forced from their homes Sunday because of the flooded river, which has also displaced hundreds of people in Nebraska after a massive late winter storm hit the Midwest last week. The Department of uh, the Missouri Department of Transportation reports about 100 flood related closures, including the uh, a stretch of Interstate 29. This is a lot of damage. Oh, this going is on. this is excessively widespread, very extensive damage. It was caused by that bomb cyclone that went over through the weekend from Colorado through the Great Plains states. Mm-hmm. Uh, it intensified extremely quickly, just like we're seeing hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico intensify extremely quickly. It also brought rain, which melted the snow that was already on the ground. It's a lot of water. It's got to go somewhere. It's so bad that it even flooded Stratcom, the U.S. Air Force. Strategic yeah. Air Command in Omaha, Nebraska. They say about 30% of the base is underwater. Um, really? And again, they didn't really have a lot of time, advance, advance notice yep. to move, you know, important material like jet planes out of the way. Well, yeah, there was uh, military C-130 planes apparently were evacuated last week uh, from nearby Rosencrantz Air National Guard Base. In, in Missouri, this is uh, the National Weather Service said that the uh, river was expected to crest uh, on Thursday in St. Joseph, Missouri, at its highest level on record. Yes, these are record snowfalls that are now melting and causing record. I mean, it's shattering records in Nebraska for flooding. But when you talk about those military bases uh, that are, are, are fighting against this themselves, there's some of that climate-related threats to military bases that the yeah. military has been trying to warn about, trying to get the Trump administration's attention about, even as the Trump administration is said to be putting together a panel of climate deniers specifically in order to rebut the claims from Trump's own top military officials who have been warning about this. You know, the same military officials that Trump used to pretend to revere the Missouri River is now hitting all-time record high levels in many areas. Two deaths so far were blamed on the flooding. There are two other men uh, who have been missing for days. Uh, hundreds of people out of their homes in Nebraska. The floodwaters reached record levels at 17 locations. It washed away a couple of levees and uh, bridges as well. So it's causing not only just extensive flooding, but long-term damage that will take billions of dollars to fix and a long time as well. In one uh, in Fremont County the uh, in uh, Iowa, the Missouri River was two feet above its record level. That record level was set way, way back in 2011. Hmm. So, uh, and the emergency management director there said this wasn't a gradual rise. It just suddenly came out of nowhere and there has been nothing to slow it down. Nearly 2,000 people have been evacuated. 
at uh, eight different Iowa locations since the flooding began. Uh, so this is what we talk about when we talk about the damages that come from climate change. Global warming intensifies these storms. It will intensify the damage from these storms and our failure to maintain our crumbling infrastructure and build to prepare for the coming changes and increases in extreme weather events. This is the costs that we are facing going forward. In related news, South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who is a Buttigieg. Buttigieg. I'll never learn how to say it. He yes, is you will. Uh, <laughs> He's a declared presidential candidate for the Democratic nomination, uh, and he got in uh, pretty early, so we didn't even cover him getting in. So let me try to make up for some of that now. Uh, he's the first openly gay married such candidate to run for president, and as I said, we failed to cover him when he first jumped in, but he's get, been getting a fair a bit of attention of late, so I want to share his comments on a related issue here on climate change and the Green New Deal from over the weekend with Chris Wallace on, yes, Fox News Sunday. Let's turn to what some of the other Democrats are talking about, what's on the ideological agenda right now. A lot of Democrats pushing the Green New Deal. You have said that it's more of a goal than a plan. Explain. That's right. I mean, uh, it's a handful of pages laying out a goal for us to cut carbon emissions before they lead to changes that really destroy our economy and any prospect for people in my generation to do well. I'm thinking about what the world's going to look like in 2054 when I get to the current age of the current president. And if we don't act aggressively and immediately on climate, it's not going to be a pretty picture. So what but, but the are, you say, are you saying, for instance, that some of the talk about retrofitting every building in America or trying to make the country carbon uh, free by 2030, that that's just unrealistic? We're going to have to do it. Look, uh, by 2030? Uh, if we can't do carbon free, then we'll do net carbon free, which means that we're taking out as much as we're putting in. The bottom line is, scientifically, the right year to do that was yesterday. Uh, we have got to do this. this. This timetable isn't being set in Congress. It's being set by reality. It's being set by science. And it's going to hit. Those deadlines are going to hit in our climate with or without us. And so we have to act. What the Green New Deal gets right is it recognizes there's also a lot of economic opportunity in this. Retrofitting buildings means a huge amount of jobs for the building trades in this okay. country. I view that as a good thing. It is a good thing. That's yep. South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg on Fox News over the weekend. I love that Chris Wallace calls uh, action on climate change an ideological agenda. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's tell, not Chris uh, Wallace. Tell, uh, tell that to up. the people uh, being evacuated in Nebraska and Missouri and Iowa right now. Uh, one other uh, quick item on Pete Buttigieg uh, that I caught over the weekend on the Twitters from Anand uh, Girid Har Girid Haradis is think. that how you say it? Time Magazine editor and uh, NBC contributor. A true story he says about Pete Buttigieg. Last week, Iowa, I met South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg for the first time. I happened to introduce him to my Norwegian journalist friend Asni Sirstad. Instantaneously, Mayor Pete starts talking to her in Norwegian like a magic trick. No one is more puzzled to encounter a Norwegian speaker in Texas uh, who is also a presidential candidate than a Norwegian. Asni gasped. Mayor Pete explained that once uh, that he once read a Nor Norwegian author in translation. The trouble is that was the only book by that author that was available in English. So he learned an entire language to read more books. 
He goes on to say that there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. We have no idea who Donald Trump's successor will be, but we have already found the man most opposite of him. <laughs> yes, I believe that is true. Apparently, Buttigieg speaks seven languages. Wow. So there you have that. One more presidential-related item, presidential uh, election-related item. Beto O'Rourke, who jumped in late last week to the Democratic race, raised more than $6 million online in the first 24 hours after announcing his presidential bid last week, according to his campaign. And that outpaces all of his rivals for the Democratic nomination. Yes, including Bernie Sanders, who raised an extraordinary amount of money, blew everyone else away, at least until Beto got in the race. O'Rourke raised $6.1 million after declaring his long-anticipated bid with a web video and a trip to Iowa on Thursday, raising the sum entirely online from all 50 states, according to his campaign. That narrowly beats the first day haul of Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, who raised a paltry $5.9 million. <laughs> So he broke Bernie's record, he which broke, broke the Bernie, record. Yeah, wow. which was blew away the record. Uh, now, Bernie would go on to raise $10 million over his first week. That was also a record, so we'll see how Beto does on that score. But according to The New York Times, he has uh, captured the imagination of many Democratic activists around the country who propelled him to break financial records last year in his ultimately losing bid trying to unseat Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. And there were some doubts as to whether that same grassroots would jump in to contribute to him if he was not facing Ted Cruz. Well, apparently they are jumping in. This is a single day online haul raised uh, nearly a quarter of what Barack Obama than a senator did in his entire first quarter of 2007. Wow. So uh, we'll see if he can sustain that level of support. As I said, Sanders made $10 million, uh, very quickly in February, most of it in small donations. Sanders says that uh, he put out a fundraising email today uh, calling it bad news that Buttigieg was able to raise more money than I mean, him. Beto was raised, able. Th that Beto was able to raise. No, Bernie put out a thing saying bad news. Okay. He lost to Beto, at least in that part of the contest. Although he did note that uh, he believes he raised um, uh, more money from individual donors, though we don't yet have evidence for that one way or another. Sanders, however, did release his total number of donors in the first 24 hours. O'Rourke did not. I think that's where Sanders is getting that idea that he outraised in total numbers for whatever that means. But uh, it should also be noted O'Rourke did not accept any money from political action committees. Before Sanders entered the race with that huge haul, the largest was from Senator Kamala Harris of California. She raised a ton of money, but it was $1.5 million in the first day after announcing her candidacy. Everybody thought that was extraordinary. Then along came Bernie. Now along comes Beto. Don't know where this all goes as far as uh, popularity and voting, but uh, the money race is certainly an interesting one here. So we'll keep our eyes on that. Lots to keep our eyes on today. So let me take a quick break. And Mark Joseph Stern will help us put our eyes on 
all kinds of things that need eyes at this point. So don't go away. That's next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. On Thursday, the Connecticut Supreme Court put the gun industry on notice, as Slate's Mark Joseph Stern explains. If you advertise your weapons as alluring tools for mass slaughter, you will face consequences at least in the state of Connecticut. By a 4-3 to three vote, the court revived a lawsuit by the families of Sandy Hook victims alleging that Remington recklessly marketed its Bushmaster AR-15-style weapon for, quote, illegal offensive purposes, contributing to the, uh, to the 2012 murder of 20 school children and six adults at their elementary school in Newtown, Connecticut. The majority ruled that a federal law meant to uh, meant to protect gun manufacturers does not shield Remington from their liability for wrongful advertising, permitting a jury in the state to determine whether Remington can be held liable or not. Its decision is a stunning blow to the firearms industry, says Stern. Uh, they have long claimed near absolute legal immunity from such lawsuits thanks to that federal law, which manufacturers cite as protecting them from liability for the use of their deadly products, even in mass murders like the one at Sandy Hook or Las Vegas or Aurora, Colorado or Aurora, Illinois or San Bernardino or the Pulse nightclub in Orlando or the synagogue in Pittsburgh or the Sikh temple in Oak Creek, Wisconsin or the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, or, well, it's just an hour-long show here, but you get the idea. That could now finally change, at least a little bit, at least in Connecticut, following last week's ruling by the state Supreme Court there. The ruling, at the very least, as Stern observes, allows the plaintiffs, parents who lost their children in the shooting, to uncover private, potentially damning communications from gun companies that will reveal how Remington peddles its lethal products to the public. Joining us now to discuss that case and much more is the great Mark Joseph Stern, who covers law and the courts and much more for Slate.com. Mark Joseph Stern, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thanks so much for having me back on. Always a pleasure. It has been an egregiously long time since you've been here, my friend. Uh, we've had sort of a Mark Joseph Stern drought here on the broadcast of late. Far too long. Yes. Uh, so we will begin refilling our reservoir. Uh, well, in just a bit today, I hope. Uh, th there's a lot going on, however, so, mu so much to, uh, that I have to speak with you about. Uh, the most important may be your recent manifesto 
on daylight savings time. But we will get to that in a little bit. Uh, we'll put that off for now uh, because there's a couple of other cases that, um, well, of course, like mass shooting. Uh, and the slow but steady dismantling of a number of our constitutional rights in courts under the Trump presidency, which I guess those are important, too. Uh, But there are a couple of of court-related items breaking today I want to ask you about very quickly, if you don't mind. So get your hot takes ready, Mark. Uh, One of them is out of Mississippi on Friday night, a federal appeals court ordered Mississippi officials to redraw district lines for a state Senate district in the Mississippi Delta, leaving undisturbed the finding by a federal district uh, court judge that the boundaries diluted African-American vote. Uh, votes in violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. This according to the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. The U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals denied a request from state officials to conduct this fall's election under the existing district lines. I guess those would be the uh, unlawfully gerrymandered lines. And instead held that the legislature must draw new lines for the uh, state Senate District 22 to comply with the act or allow the election to be held under an alternative plan adopted by the court. This was a two to one order um, of a a three judge panel. Is this uh, likely to be appealed for an on bank ruling by the full Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, or to the U.S. Supreme Court, given the uh, the issue and the time element we're now dealing with? I think they have elections in uh, off year elections in Mississippi and If so, uh, what should we expect about similar rulings regarding gerrymandering in a whole bunch of states uh, that are holding elections in 2019, including Virginia, where the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments on racial gerrymandering today? And one more I'll toss in um, as the 2020 election season, as early as it is, is already uh, rushing upon us. And we're looking at partisan gerrymandering as well. Uh, about to be heard, I think, next week in the U.S. Supreme Court. Where where are we on this at this moment in our oh, history? Oh, <laughs> where are we? Well, we are in the middle of a gerrymandering brawl, uh, as what you just said sort of illustrates. I mean, we are really going through a kind of legal convulsion over how much uh, our lawmakers can draw partisan district lines to swing elections in their favor. And, you know, the Fifth Circuit decision was surprising to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am not sure it will be upheld on appeal uh, because we have to remember this was a three-judge panel mm-hmm. of a very conservative court, and the the, uh, the plaintiffs here just happened to draw two liberal judges, two of only a few on that court. Uh, they went out, they stuck their necks out, they said, you know what, this is illegal racial gerrymandering and we are not going to stand for it. Uh, and I think that's the right decision. But mm-hmm. Uh, we're not sure if the state is going to ask the full Fifth Circuit to reverse that decision, which it may well. Then I think that, unfortunately, we'll get that gerrymander back. And if the state appeals to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, I think that the court's going to reinstate the gerrymander because both the Fifth Circuit as a whole and the U.S. Supreme Court have taken a 
super hard line uh, on what has to be proven in order for a court to strike down a racial gerrymander under the Voting Rights Act. Uh, it doesn't just have to dilute uh, black people's voting power, right? You have to have evidence of discrimination against black people, intentional discrimination. And last term, uh, Justice Samuel Alito, writing for a 5-4 to four court, mm-hmm. really uh, raised the bar uh, for what has to be proven to the point that almost no plaintiff is going to win these cases unless you have a Republican with a pen in hand and a map before him saying, I want to prevent black people from a Electing their preferred representatives. Uh, so I'm not optimistic about this case, uh, and I'm sad to say I'm not optimistic about the other cases on the on the horizon either. Well, Next week, the Supreme Court's going to hear partisan gerrymandering. I just don't know if John Roberts is going to be willing to open the federal courthouse doors to people challenging partisan gerrymandering. Well, before we even get to the partisan gerrymandering, we're talking about in Mississippi and in Virginia, where I think they uh, heard oral arguments on, on Monday in the Supreme Court on that as well, we're talking about uh, first racial gerrymandering, which my understanding was the court has long ago decided that that is unconstitutional. That's not, uh, you know, unlike uh, partisan gerrymandering, where uh, it's done for uh, party purposes, they claim uh, that uh, the, the court hasn't come down hard one way or the other yet. But on racial gerrymandering, I thought that was a done deal. I thought that once you uh, prove that there was a racial gerrymandering, that was unlawful, that was unconstitutional. And had to change. Well, the problem is that there is a very, very mixed and confusing jurisprudence regarding racial gerrymanders here. And weirdly enough, one of the swing votes on the issue is Clarence Thomas. So when we're talking about uh, unlawfully diluting black people's votes, like what allegedly happened in Mississippi, right? Mm -hmm. Drawing lines to prevent black people uh, from basically electing their preferred representative Mm -hmm. uh, under the Voting Rights Act, that should be impermissible. But two justices, Gorsuch and Thomas, don't think that the Voting Rights Act even applies to gerrymandering. And the other three conservatives seem to think that when you're talking about vote dilution, you need to have a smoking gun, evidence of of impermissible racial animus. Now, the flip side of that, and this is really confusing, but bear with me, the flip side of that is when legislators try to say that they're only creating racial gerrymanders so that black people can elect their preferred representatives. These are called VRA districts sometimes. Clarence Thomas will vote with the liberals to strike those down as a violation of equal protection. So we're in this really bizarre system whereby if a state was basically trying to secretly dilute black people's votes, uh, then they might well get away with it. But if a state is trying to sort of pack a bunch of black people into a few districts, allegedly in order to comply with the VRA, then the Supreme Court will strike that down as an equal protection violation. The whole thing is upside out, inside out. It's really wacky, and we just don't know how Thomas is going to come down on these cases because he swings back and forth mm. each time. Yeah, well, hearing a Thomas as the swing vote on anything is certainly wacky. Be afraid. Yeah. Be very afraid. Uh, yeah, and, and the other thing that uh, really troubles me about all of this, uh, no matter which way these, these cases are decided, we're, here we are in, in 2019, we're basically looking at maps that were drawn after the 2010 census. 
Almost a full decade later, and we are, you know, now just, uh, you know, Pennsylvania, I guess just last year, they finally drew new maps because there was a gerrymanders there. We're looking at Mississippi drawing new maps. We've got this case in, in Virginia. The Supreme Court is is considering uh, uh, partisan gerrymanders, I guess, in Wisconsin, North Carolina, Maryland, if I'm remembering them correctly. We are 10 years on from the census that resulted in these new maps and we're looking after 2020 at draw uh, having another census drawing these maps again this all seems to be completely useless uh the the jurisprudence regarding gerrymanders if it takes 10 years to get any kind of decision on on these issues isn't this just a broken system from the jump mark Yes, it is. And the muddle that I just described is part of the problem, that the court just cannot articulate a clear rule. I would prefer a rule that says, look, if you're taking race into account, you're committing an equal protection violation. But the court can't seem to commit to that. And, of course, these legislators keep coming up with new and more sophisticated ways to draw race-based lines and to mask the fact that they did so. This mm-hmm. was a key point in the North Carolina legislature. You know, these guys huddled behind closed doors, used this very advanced computer brought in by a literal GOP operative, and not only tried to draw biased lines, but then masked their work so that courts wouldn't be able to figure out what they did. This is a totally broken system. Federal courts are sometimes, in the case of that Mississippi issue, doing the best they can to suss out a clear rule, figure out what the evidence is, and go from there. But it's just such a muddle all of the time that all of us who cover this just want to bang our heads against our desk. Yeah, I know I sure do. I mean, because you look at it, even if you end up with a favorable ruling in all of these cases we talked about, that means that we have had you know, almost 10 years of right. uh, elections that should not have been uh, carried out, should not have uh, had the representation that the voters ended up having in these various districts. Uh, this is a broken system, and I I, I really don't know uh, what is to be done about it. Um, you know, there's been a lot of moves to have independent uh, committees draw up these lines. That seems, and of course, I don't think there's any such thing as an independent committee, but uh, at least that gets, a, gets us a little bit closer sir, uh, rather than, uh, you know, adjudicating it in the courts over a decade as election after election, you know, fails on behalf of the voters. Yes. And those those commissions, Hmm. the independent redistricting commissions have worked really well in California and Arizona. Uh, Those states' legislatures do seem to reflect roughly uh, the proportion of of votes that were cast for their party. Um, But the Supreme Court only upheld independent, only upheld uh, independent redistricting commissions by a five to four vote. Mm. And Kennedy was the swing vote. And I think it's absolutely possible that Kavanaugh could now come in and strike down independent redistricting. Well, okay, fantastic. Uh, More good news before we get to uh, uh, Sandy Hook here. Uh, The uh, actually and this one may be good news. The loathsome uh, GOP voter fraud fraudster uh, who is now happily the former secretary of state of Kansas and the failed Republican gubernatorial nominee uh, in the state. Chris Kobach, he may be out of office now, but his uh, seemingly unlawful law requiring uh, proof of citizenship before a voter may be allowed to vote. 
That law sort of lives on, barely, at least it's hanging on in the appeals court. It was struck down in 2016 by a district court judge as a, quote, mass denial of a fundamental constitutional right. It was also uh, uh, struck down by a a two-to-one decision by a three-judge panel of the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. But the uh, full court heard argument on Monday over the uh, constitutionality of that struck down statute. Should voters in Kansas brace themselves for the law to uh, sort of rise from the ashes here under the Tenth Circuit uh, full court hearing or even later from the Supreme Court? No, I don't. I don't think so, um, because the issue here is actually it's not just co- the constitutional question. It's also a pretty straightforward question of federal law. You know, uh, Mitch McConnell tries to make us forget this all the time, but the Constitution vests Congress with the authority uh, to set national standards for federal elections mm-hmm. uh, and voting procedures. And Congress came in and regulated this field uh, quite a while ago uh, in the in the Motor Voter. Act, the one that lets us all register to vote at the DMV, Mm -hmm. Uh, and one of the things that Congress did was set the standard for what states can and cannot demand uh, when people register to vote, Uh, and and it made quite clear that states were not allowed to go beyond what Congress prescribed uh, and demand new extra stuff that would trip up people trying to register, and that's exactly what Kansas did here, and that's what the federal judge found, uh, and that's what the Tenth Circuit found earlier, And and I just do not see a very strong chance that uh, a majority of the Tenth Circuit will reverse all of those findings and decide that actually Congress was not setting a a ceiling, it was setting a floor, that Chris Kobach can come in and create all these new hurdles. That just goes against the very plain text of the law. And it would also kind of make the judges seem like idiots, because what what this federal trial judge did was painstakingly prove that everything Kobach said was a lie, that there is no evidence of mass fraudulent voting, but there is evidence that this rule uh, prevented a ton of people, tens of thousands, from exercising their fundamental right to vote. So I'm not worried about this case. Maybe I'm being too optimistic, but I'm choosing not to let it sort of <laughs> haunt me uh, because I, I think that it's going to come out the right way. Well, because, yeah, there are a lot of uh, new judges on these appeals courts. Uh, we saw that. We may get to it in a moment in this Ohio decision on Planned Parenthood. There's a lot of uh, th- these courts have been packed now with uh, Donald Trump appointees, Mark. And, you know, it's one thing to get a three-judge panel, but when the whole court hears it, who knows where they could go? And Yes, uh, uh, you know... I think that Donald Trump's appointees are brazen. I think that some of them are trying to take uh, a sort of intermediate steps toward their ultimate goal and pretending like Chris Kobach uh, isn't just full of garbage all the time. That would pretty much make clear that they are hacks pursuing a partisan agenda. So again, I'm just trying to be optimistic. Let, let me and let me underscore uh, your point from the uh, from the from the trial itself on which this is based. Judge Julie Robinson, this is back in 2016, found that between 1999 and 2013, so we're talking about uh, almost 15 years, there was a total of 39 non-citizens living in Kansas who successfully registered to vote. Most of them, it was due to confusion by the applicant or an administrative error by the state of Kansas themselves. So even if you count all 39 of those non-citizens over those 15 years, we're talking about a 0.002 percent 
uh, of the more than uh, 100, uh, let's see, almost 2 million registered voters in Kansas. Uh, and of those 39, just 11 of them actually voted over that 15-year period. And yet, at the same time, Kobach's law um, had prevented some 30,000 legally registered voters from being allowed to vote. That's a full 12% of new registrations uh, for lack of presenting citizenship papers to stop those, I guess, 11 votes by non-citizens. So, yeah. uh, boy, I hope the courts get this one right at the very least, uh, Mr. Stern. All right, let me, uh, let, well, let's move on to... Uh, Sorry, to, before you move yeah. on, I just wanted to yeah, pause yeah. there. So yeah. one thing, I, and I just double-checked this, it is actually not the full court that's hearing the case today. It's another three-judge panel. Oh, oh, really? A second three-judge panel? Yes. Thank you for correcting my error. Yes, of course. Uh, all right. So, uh, okay. Well, so another three-judge panel. Does that uh, change any uh, any any of your thinking as far as whether this will be uh, struck down or somehow reversed this time? Uh, you know, I continue to think. I continue to think that this is just a slam dunk for for the ACLU okay. who's representing the voters. I, I don't see this the court coming in and saying we got it wrong last time and and we're reversing our decision, especially with all the evidence you just laid. Out. Okay. Hope you're right. Uh, <laughs> let's uh, let's go on to uh, Sandy Hook, where I actually hope you are right as well. Well, we know you're right, at least uh, on, on a certain level, when it comes to the uh, Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court in Connecticut, in uh, their ruling against gun manufacturers, essentially in Connecticut, that in fact uh, they can be held liable for their actions if a jury decides to hold them liable. That despite a federal law that was seen as giving the uh, gun companies blanket immunity pretty much for their for the use of their products. Now, first, uh, what is the federal the federal law in question that the state Supreme Court in Connecticut has determined uh, does not apply here? And, and why is this, as you see it, such a big deal? You regard it as as stunning. A stunning ruling in your uh, coverage at Slate. Yeah, well, so the, the it, law here is called PLACA, the Protection of Lawful Arms and Commerce Act. And the issue is that uh, when, when gun manufacturers saw big tobacco getting sued over and over again and losing for creating a public health crisis, the firearm industry said, we don't want that to happen to us. So they lobbied Congress to pass this law, which basically exempts gun sellers and manufacturers from all kinds of liability that literally every other industry, from cars to tobacco, to pharmaceuticals uh, have to fight against and, you know, protect consumers against. Uh, and so basically Congress wanted to give gun manufacturers everything they could have, but they did create a few exceptions. And one of the exceptions is a law that allows states to apply uh, their own regulations regarding uh, advertising to gun companies. Now, it's a very, very narrow little loophole here, uh, and the Sandy Hook plaintiffs had to work really hard to craft their case to fit it. Um, but what they said was basically, look, Connecticut has this law that prohibits reckless 
uh, dangerous, offensive, and illegal advertising, right? Mm -hmm. And the advertising for Bushmaster's AR-15, which is what Adam Lanza used to murder all of the people in Sandy Hook, Mm -hmm. it was very clearly offensive and illegal. This did not say, oh, use this weapon to protect yourself, use it for hunting, use it for target shooting, for fun. This said, use it to kill a bunch of people. One of the taglines was, bow down, your enemies are outnumbered. It showed these men uh, basically in a position to slaughter a ton of their perceived enemies. Uh, And so the plaintiff's theory here is, look, uh, this this company may not have known who Adam Lanza was, mm-hmm. but it was courting him and people like him by persuading them to buy this product and use it uh, to slaughter all of his perceived enemies. Uh, and the Connecticut Supreme Court agreed with that interpretation of the law and said, look, we're not saying that the theory is absolutely correct here. We're not saying that a jury won't, won't decide this against the plaintiffs, mm-hmm. but a jury deserves to hear this case. And a jury deserves to determine whether Bushmaster engaged in this reckless, illegal, and offensive advertising, which is illegal under Connecticut law and not barred by the federal statute. So this is, and and let me be clear here, by the way, because I don't want to get sued by the uh, gun manufacturers. The advertisement didn't actually say, use it to kill a bunch of people, as Mark Joseph Stern just (laughs) said. But obviously, that's what it was indicating. It wasn't saying, uh, keep your family safe, buy a Bushmaster. It was saying, you know, be the the, the master of your domain or whatever. I mean, it was really aggressive, uh, you know, sort of of, of, of violent uh, military uh, sort of advertising here for yeah. this product. It was basically trying to turn civilian life into a, a weapon, into a military theater mm-hmm. and uh, a place where you would need to use a weapon to shoot a bunch of people. And, you know, think about this. When you watch a car commercial and the driver performs a dangerous stunt... Yeah. You see on the bottom of the screen, do not attempt at home, right? Like when you watch a a knife ad and and if someone is like chopping vegetables in a really fancy way, the ad says do not attempt at home. These basic principles of liability say if you advertise something for a particularly dangerous or even illegal use, you know, at the very least you have to add a disclaimer. You have to say this isn't what we're encouraging you to actually go do, but the gun industry thinks it doesn't have to do that, and uh, well, don't they now have, they're going to decide if a jury agrees. Well, don't they have the essentially the First Amendment right to uh, to advertise their products as they see fit? Well, there's no First Amendment right to engage in what is sometimes called reckless or uh, unlawful advertising. You know, there's no First Amendment right for a car company to place a driver in a car and have him drive off a cliff and jump out at the last minute and say, look what your Mazda can do. (laughs) Uh, Courts have held these companies liable if they do not include these disclaimers. This is not pure political speech, right? This is commercial speech. There are lower protections under the First Amendment. Uh, And so, you know, if if the court wants to, if, if the Supreme Court wants to take this case and say, there's a First Amendment right to advertise weapons of war as a fun way to shoot all your enemies, then, you know, that would be one thing. But until they say that, uh, the Connecticut Supreme Court is quite right to say that the First Amendment doesn't impose any limitations on this lawsuit. And so is this big because of uh, what it will allow in Connecticut, or is this uh, a stunning decision, as you describe it, because 
well, for two points, one, it shows how states can work around this terrible federal law. And you said this is the only federal law that actually protects a manufacturer at all like this? Yes. Uh, there, there's no similar law for pharmaceutical companies, for car companies, for other companies and, and industries that create dangerous stuff. So uh, this is it. It stands alone. And, and I think that sort of indicates just how much the Congress that passed this law was, was uh, in the pocket of the mm, industry. Yeah. So this is a big deal because, of course, you know, one state has sort of shown the way uh, for uh, other state courts to work around this federal law. Mm-hmm. But it's also a big deal because now the plaintiffs in this case are going to get to look at what Remington was thinking when it pushed this Bushmaster rifle, what its advertising strategy was, what its campaign was, just how recklessly it pushed a lethal weapon of war onto consumers like Adam Lanza. Mm-hmm. That is the, the, the whole ball game in this case. Yes, the, the survivors would like a, a monetary award. They believe they deserve damages. But they also want to know how this company was taking steps, if it did, to prevent the use of its weapon in slaughters and massacres like this one. So it's going to uh, hopefully sort of pull the lid back over this industry and show everyone what's been percolating inside as more and more of these shootings occur. Because in that discovery process now, they'll be able to get access to all of the emails and the communications between the inside the company and between the company and their advertisers and so forth. Exactly. Uh, okay, so that is a big deal. Uh, one more big deal here before we get to a, a, a quick break. Um you wrote at Slate last week about how the federal courts are not waiting for the um, U.S. Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade, uh, as many abortion rights proponents are now expecting uh, to come from the stolen U.S. Supreme Court, but uh, rather uh, death by a thousand cuts, so to speak, here at lower courts. Last week you wrote about um, the uh, ruling in Ohio by the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals Uh, describing that as just one of many recent rulings that seem to be gutting Roe v. Wade uh, by a thousand cuts here. Uh, This would defund Planned Parenthood in Ohio. Uh, Who can we blame here, Mark? The uh, Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals now has four Trump judges. Is is that to blame? And and is this what we can now expect from other courts all over the country, thanks to the Trump presidency on, on issues like this? Well, so if you do the math uh, and you assume that all of the judges would have voted the same way in a world without Trump, uh, this case would have come down seven to six against Planned Parenthood, uh, and instead it came down eleven to six against Planned Parenthood with the Trump judges. So we can't blame them directly for this ruling, and this was the full court sitting. Uh, but I think what we can blame uh, is probably the sort of legal movement among lower courts in this country, uh, beginning with the retirement of Anthony Kennedy and his replacement with Justice Kavanaugh, uh, to kill Roe v. Wade by a thousand cuts, as you put it. Uh, this is the Sixth Circuit feeling emboldened to go way out on a limb uh, and say that there is no constitutional protection uh, for abortion providers, that abortion providers do not receive any kind of protection uh, when states attack their ability to give women access to safe and legal abortions, uh, a ruling that totally misreads precedent, that goes against decades of Supreme Court jurisprudence. But the Sixth Circuit says, hey, you know what? 
Tony Kennedy isn't here to kick us around anymore. Mm. So we're going to go with this and see if we can get away with it. And all four Trump judges sitting on the case signed on to it. Uh, another Trump judge who's been appointed since that case was heard, he's the Ohio Solicitor General who defended the state's effort to defund Planned Parenthood. Mm. So we can blame all of these lower courts that are going way out on a limb to kill Roe v. Wade, uh, and we can say with certainty that pretty much every single judge who's hand-selected by Donald Trump and his Federalist Society enablers is going to do whatever he or she can to limit or end uh, legal access to abortion. And if these lower courts are willing to uh, toss out precedent in order to just do what they want to do at this point, is it fair to say that... uh Justice Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court, who pretended to support Roe uh, during his his confirmation hearings. Uh, At least he pretended well enough to fool Senators Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. Uh, But last month in an Alabama case, uh, you wrote that uh, Kavanaugh sort of gave away his game in that case, ignoring precedent. Is that what we can now expect? Should we all be bracing ourselves essentially for Roe v. Wade to be killed, period, end of story, at the U.S. Supreme Court before long. Well, uh, in that Louisiana case, Kavanaugh came out the wrong way, basically, ignoring precedent. But Roberts voted the right way, and he actually uh, sort of uh, observed and respected precedent and voted to block the Louisiana abortion attack. So I think that for now, Roberts is sort of biding his time, uh, but I don't think he's going to remain pro-choice for any longer than he has to. He's playing a strategic game. Uh, I think Roe is doomed. I think it will be either gutted or entirely overturned within maybe two or three years, four at the most, unless we pack the courts. Uh, And so if Roe v. Wade is something you care about, yes, you should be very concerned right now. As we like to say on this show, elections matter, don't they? Uh, Let's take a quick break and we'll come back. Uh, Very quickly, I want to talk to you, Mark, about something that you wrote about that, like I said, is just way more important than all of this other stuff we've been talking about. That would be daylight savings time. Stand by, Mark. Quick break and we're back with Mark Joseph Stern of Slate here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Now I just can't stay inside all day. I gotta get out, give me some of those rays. Everybody's smarter, sunshine day. 
Yep. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com speaking with our friend, the great Mark Joseph Stern, court reporter, legal reporter over at slate.com. Mark, um, this is uh, very important. About once a year, we try to take time to recognize on this program or at the blog, um, Really, the one and only thing that I believe the Republicans in Congress under George W. Bush's administration deserve our great appreciation for. The only thing, there's one thing in all of those years. Do you know what it is? The expansion of daylight saving time. I am so grateful to the Bush, George W. Bush Republicans during that administration for that, for extend, expanding daylight savings time. Uh, and I, I was happy to see, though you didn't mention that aspect of it, I was happy to see that you too are a daylight savings time fan, and I was shocked to read in your article that, that this is, for some reason, incredibly controversial. What is wrong with people? Oh, great question. What's wrong with people is that they're idiots because they don't know what daylight saving time is. And so they blame it for something that they actually want and they get completely confused and go on rants that push the conversation in the wrong freaking direction. So here's what happens. Let me put it to you simply. Yeah. Every single November, we fall back. We push the clock back, mm -hmm. and the sun starts to set earlier and earlier, right? Yeah. It's horrible. Everyone hates it. Right. And they all go on Twitter and Facebook and sometimes TV and say, ah, oh, this is daylight saving time, and I hate it. They usually call it savings time, which is incorrect, by the way. It's not a bank account. It's just saving <laughs> with no S at the end. Okay. Uh, and they say, wow, awful. Congress needs to abolish DST, daylight saving time. It's terrible. I hate it. It's awful. Well, guess what, you idiots? That's <laughs> not daylight saving time. Daylight saving time is what we are in now. Right. It is after we spring forward. Right. The miserable period that we suffer through from November to March yes. every year, that is standard time. We should not abolish DST. We should expand DST year-round. The people who are attacking what they think is DST are actually attacking standard time, and they need to get the freaking phrases straight so we can all work together to end <laughs> this abomination it of is, standard time. It is an abomination, and I was shocked to see you quoted, uh, you, you linked to a tweet by uh, Ellen DeGeneres, even she doesn't get it right. Last November, she said tonight's hashtag daylight savings time. Don't worry, it's the good one. Hashtag fall back. No, that's not the good one. Why would <laughs> and she? And it's not DST. I know. Uh, every November and yeah. every March, yeah. I have collected tweets of prominent people yeah. who think that they are entering the period they dislike and don't understand what's going on. And this year, finally, my editor said, just write it out so you can just tweet it yes. twice a year. And that is what I have done with this article. I am so frustrated and tired of people blaming daylight saving time for the evils of standard time. They need to get this straight in their heads. When you get that extra hour of sunlight at the end of the day, that is DST. That is the sunlight yes. being saved. Standard time is the bad one. Ellen DeGeneres, you are part of the problem. <laughs> yes, exactly. Now, California, by the way, we had the right idea. We passed uh, Proposition 7, I think, last uh, last November yes. that will allow daylight savings time to happen 
all year around, which frankly is the way it should be. And I don't want to hear from any whiners talking about how dark it is in the morning. We want uh, more daylight uh, throughout the day, throughout the evening. But California, we can't actually change it to daylight savings time all year round, even though, you know, Arizona, they get to keep standard time for some stupid reason all year round. But in order to go to daylight savings time all around, we have to get federal approval for that, Mark. Yes, you do. Current, the, under the current system, the federal government has to approve every state's clock change, which is a nightmare. Um, you guys passed Proposition 7, which basically uh, encourages the legislature to submit a request for year-round DST. Uh, but the legislature hasn't done that yet, and the request might go unanswered. That's what's happening in my home state of Florida, which is actually a leader on this issue. Uh, everyone in Florida wants year-round DST. Marco Rubio has been pushing for this for years. Uh, the legislature in Florida passed year-round DST, but the federal government has not approved it yet. Uh, and so we're still all sitting here terrified of what's going to happen in November. <laughs> but- uh, we we need reform here, and we need it badly. But what I, I should point out, uh, however, as I've uh, researched this, apparently, while you have to get permission to change um, uh, to, to that from the federal government, apparently Fre- Florida and the other East Coast states, if they wanted to, could actually change their entire time zone and go from Eastern time to uh, Atlantic time and therefore spring forward by an hour all by themselves. If I understand. Uh, is it an hour or a half hour? Because there is a really weird time zone, too, that oh. some Canadian islands subscribe to. Once we get into time zones, I think we're moving a little too far. Okay, I think that's like, let's keep Eastern time, Eastern time, you know? <laughs> let's just make what the people want happen and introduce DST year-round. And give, I don't think we need other this fancy stuff. We just need what we've always wanted. And, and give me something that I can then look back on Republicans during the Trump administration to laud them for, for years in the future. I Absolutely. will recognize them every day. Now, uh, one uh, good point here that uh, before I, g- I got to get out, but uh, w- there is one problem that uh, The Daily Show's Trevor Noah noted. I don't know if you saw this, but uh, the fact that we lose an hour of sleep on Saturday night uh, and Sunday morning in, in the spring, I think that's a small price to pay, frankly. But Trevor Noah says it's at the worst possible hour. Moving, you know, at 2 a.m., we jump forward to 3 a.m. in the middle of the night. He says, why not on Friday at 4 p.m., just move it up to 5 p.m.? Everyone (laughs) goes home an hour early, and everyone would then love daylight savings time. No, that's a good idea, isn't it? You know, I'm fine with that, but the thing is, in my utopia, that's a, that's a, an unimportant question, because the issue here is the clocks changing at all. We know that clock changes are bad. There is an uptick in uh, fatal traffic accidents, uh, workplace accidents, uh, even an uptick in some crime uh, when we move the clock, uh, because people don't adjust very well to this this total time zone change. They need to have some consistency here. Uh, so I think we just need to keep the clock on DST year-round. Yes, it would be nice if we must change it to do it on a Friday afternoon, but we shouldn't be doing it at all. It gets everyone all flustered and upset. It may cause an uptick in deaths on the road, so let's just do away with it. You are absolutely right, and if listeners disagree, I would underscore that Mark's Twitter account is MJS underscore DC. He 
would love to hear your complaints there. Don't send them to me, uh, but do send them to him and follow his work, as always, at Slate.com. Glad we could cover this most important issue uh, today as well, Mark. Thank you, brother. It is vital. Always great talking, my friend. Let's do it sooner in the future. Sounds good. Can't wait. Thanks, brother. Okay, we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to Mark Joseph Stern, of course, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. You've got an extra hour at night to listen to it. You can also drop me email. I'm Bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. And thanks to those of you who help us stay on your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. You're the only ones that keep us going. Bradblog.com slash donate. That's it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good day, sunshine. Need to laugh, and when the sun is out, I've got something I can laugh about. I feel good.